Hey folks, it's time for another episode of the High Power Archery Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing some of the secrets to mastering accuracy. And for anyone who saw our Facebook post, these are taken from the pages of our new Necronomicon Sagittorium, which is just a fancy word of saying Book of Archery in Latin. Anyway, there is a video that goes along with that, describing the origins of the Necronomicon all deep and dark that they may be, but that's for another time. We'll get to that later. Anyway, so, some may be asking, what are you talking about having a Necronomicon of archery? Well, here's the thing. Over the years, I've come up with a lot of different tips and tricks and stuff that I've learned and trial and error, seeing other people do it, whatever have you. And I finally came to the conclusion that it was important to write these things down. As a matter of fact, I think everyone should probably have a little book that they keep all their notes in because you'd be surprised when you solve a problem that you have, a couple of months, a couple of years go by, same problem comes up, but you kind of forgot what you did the last time if you even remember having that same problem at all. If you have your own little Necronomicon, as I'm calling it, yeah, I like to be fancy like that, then you can just look through the pages and find the answer that you had the last time. In the case of my Necronomicon, it's sorted into chapters about shooting form, tuning, troubleshooting, tweaks, advanced little things you can do to give you that much more of an edge. But like I said, for this week's episode, we're going to talk about mastering accuracy. And you know, I'm always asked what the key to shooting more accurately is. That's like a question that every single time I get somebody who meets me at the range, they they always want like that secret sauce. Like, what do you do to get more accurate? And the truth is, it's really not just one thing. It's a combination of things. They all form what I call an archery solution. Look at it this way. How do you build a skyscraper? Yeah, we don't have to get all the technical and all that pulling permits and buying property. No, I'm not talking about that. You start off with a solid foundation. It has to be strong enough to handle the weight of the building without falling and without failing. Then you have a structure. It also has to be strong, but believe it or not, it has to be flexible enough not to snap under pressure. The higher you go, the more flexible it has to be. And if you've ever been in a New York City high-rise, you can often get freaked out by the swaying of a building in the upper floors in high wind. I've been in them. Trust me, it's not fun. But after a while, your brain adjusts to it and you just don't notice it. Lastly, there has to be a blueprint that engineers can go back and look at when something is not working correctly. If the electrical system fails or something like that somewhere, they can go back and find a failure point really easily because they have a map for it. This prevents them from having to go on a detective you know, hunt to figure out what's actually going on for even the smallest things. The manual or the blueprint, as we're calling it, is used to easily diagnose a map so that you can find the problem and take care of it quickly. This way, the building is never really in any danger, and no one really notices, and everything goes on normal. The way I look at it, 
archery form and execution should be no different than that. Let's start with the foundation. This is your form. Once your form is rock solid, meaning it doesn't vary every single time, it's so much easier to maintain the, the archery system in good working order. So form is comprised of a lot of different things. Well, one of the things is alignment. Your alignment has to be proper. And I'll get into this in another episode in a lot more depth. But for the most part, if your alignment is off, nothing's really going to work. And all kinds of weird stuff will happen. And some people don't get that when their draw length is too short or too long, you'll see it in their alignment. You really need a coach or somebody else watching you to, to detect it unless you're shooting in front of a mirror or something like that. But even so, with a mirror, it'd have to be behind you, and you have to see the position of your elbow. Basically, that's what that comes down to. So starting with the alignment, okay, we're looking at the foundation. If we start with that, you have to be exactly in line to the target. So this should be a straight line between your hand in the front, your hand in the rear, and the elbow. And that forms kind of a triangle because if you ever see people who try to stretch it across their chest, it never works out right. A lot of people do that just to get extra draw length, which makes really no sense because if you can't shoot accurately, what's the point? But anyway, so alignment is very, very key. Now, the next part, as I mentioned, is the grip. Grip is extremely important because if you're gripping gripping the handle like a pistol, okay, When you fire, there's going to be torquing. Because if you put your hand out like you're going to hold a pistol, you'll notice right now that you can sway your wrist left and right. But if your grip is in a position and your hand is in a position like you're saying stop to somebody and you're just putting the riser along your lifeline of your palm and you're putting pressure on the lower part of your palm, Not the upper part, the lower part. I'll get to it in a minute why I'm saying that. But if you're putting pressure on the lower part of your palm, what's happening is you're pushing forward and the bow is all of a sudden stable. And if someone tries to move your hand when you're just holding it up like that and say they put their finger right at the lower part of your lifeline and they pushed, your hand is kind of locked in place. It doesn't shift left to right. So some people say, well, I like a high grip. Well, the problem with the high grip and putting all the pressure on the top end, like near where the webbing of your thumb is, that it's a natural pivot point. So if you all of a sudden, instead of putting a stop sign up, you kind of put your hand almost flat or level with just that little neck in between your thumb and your first finger right there holding the bow, it'll shift from left to right and pivot so easy. And it's not very repeatable. So what will happen is you have that high grip. When you fire, it's going to snap to the left. It's going to snap to the right. You'll get all kinds of randomness. So a lot of times when I'm fixing people's shot, I kind of start there. If their alignment's okay, some, most of the time it's their grip that's screwed up. Fix the grip, a lot of stuff starts to come together. Now, just as important as the grip in the front is the hand position in the back. So let's just say that you have your... And I I saw a video recently where someone was saying that the hand has to be completely flat 
up against your face. And you all know I have a lot of special words I use. Well, I call one word for that, horse hockey. It ain't true. Your hand has to be completely relaxed. Now, whether or not you're bending it at the wrist or you're laying it against your face, however it is, it has to be relaxed. And the reason why it's not true that everyone has to have that hand just flat up against the side of their face with their wrist straight and all that, well, everybody's arms, elbows, shoulders, they're all different sizes. People don't come on one specified size. So the length of your segments, meaning your forearm, your, your bicep, everything, that all makes different shapes. For some people, it may be fine just to put it flat because it feels normal and they can do that without stressing the hand. For other people, because of the size of the segments of their arm, it's not comfortable. So for them, it may be more natural just to bend at the wrist, then attach it to their face, and then they can pull normally. Well, some people say, well, you can't pull if, you're, if your wrist is bent. Yeah, you can. And you should be pulling. It doesn't make a difference what position your hand is in. And I'll tell you why. Because when you're firing, the idea is you're applying tension with your shoulder muscles. You're actually holding with your shoulder. You're pulling with your shoulder towards your spine. That's not a new concept. I've been over that a million times. But the idea is that if there's any tension in your hand, any tension in your forearm, or anything like that, it creates a problem of resistance. Remember, we're trying to pull like that whole thing is connected to a chain, and you're just pulling that chain into your shoulder. Well, if there's resistance in there, it's not going to pull properly. If there's resistance, you're going to wind up getting a random shot. So some people wonder why, well, I'm repeating the same thing every single time, but I'm getting shots to the left or right, and my alignment is correct, my draw length is correct. Why does this keep happening? Well, it's because sometimes, because your arm, your wrist, your fingers are not relaxed, when you're pulling, if there's pressure or tension in any part of that connector system, you're going to wind up pulling either too far in towards you, which results in a shot to the outside, to the right, if you're right-handed. Or you're going to wind up pulling away from your face, which will wind up with a left shot. Think in your head how many times that may have happened to you. Happens all the time. If your arm is not properly devoid of tension. And your hand and all that. So next you got to worry about Body adaptation. What does that mean? Well, you've heard me discuss it before. Sometimes you have what they call the rubber band effect. And when I was teaching people about blank bail and stuff like that, because you all know how I feel about blank bail, and it's not for what you think. It doesn't cure TP or target panic or anything like that. But when we're actually using a blank bail or something like that to determine where your natural snap is, What I mean is, your body can line up fine, no problem. But it has a natural tendency to want to go where it wants to go. So imagine that when you're coiling up for a shot and you're drawing back and all that, 
ideally, when you fire, as tension is released from your midsection and all that and from your arms, that your body will stay in the same position and the arrow just go forward. Well, what happens is if you're turning and you're coiling and your body has a default reaction, let's just say, to want to snap back into a particular position, that natural snapback can wind up with you having shots going to the left if you're a right-handed shooter. So how we correct that is we just fix your stance so you're a little bit more pitched in, and when you draw back, you'll find out and you fire. We keep doing that until we get to, to the spot where you're addressing the target at such an angle that your body doesn't want to snap anymore. And you would be surprised what kind of a difference that makes in some people's accuracy. Now, most important out of all these things, when they're combined, is comfort. So, any foundation of anything you're doing, whether it's you're putting together a workout, you're putting together your archery form, anything, has to be built off a level of comfort. What do I mean? Well, you'll see certain instructors, wannabe coaches, whatever you want to call them. I could really start calling them names, but I won't because everybody has the right to their own opinion, no matter how incorrect it may be. But here's the deal. They'll tell you, stand at attention, suck in your gut, draw back, have your chest pumped up forward and all that. Okay, well, here's the problem, Scooby. How many times can somebody do that before one of those little steps starts to break down? Because you're doing something where you're trying to adhere to a rigid form, and the problem with rigid form is you can't keep it up forever. This is plainly exhibited by watching what happens to somebody when they're shooting their first round of a tournament. Bang, 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 10, 10, 10. Form is perfect and all that. Check them 20 minutes later. How much of their form has degraded from that? Why? Because they're getting tired. Some people would say they're getting lazy, but those same coaches who are preaching, you're just getting lazy. Suck it up again and get it right back to where it belongs. Well, listen to them. They should really listen to themselves because honestly... The problem is you can only replicate that rigid form for so long before you get tired, one thing starts dropping or the other. So the idea is start off with a comfortable position because you know what? You won't get tired. And if you do get tired, it will be a lot longer, a lot later than it will be from such a rigid form. That doesn't mean you should have a sloppy form, but you have to get to the point where it's comfortable for you. Because it all adds up to repeatability. And repeatability becomes accuracy because you're doing the same thing every single time. Stop trying to be perfect on every shot. Be repeatable. If you're repeatable, you will get excellence out of it because everything is being executed in exactly the same way. And that's why the sights are there, because as long as you're doing everything else besides the actual shooting where you're just relaxing, your your shot is 
identical from one to the next. Everything comes into place. Now, then we have what we call the structure. This is your equipment. So people would say, well, what does your equipment have to do with it? Because I thought everything was based on form and all that. Well, here, here's the, the deal with structure. Because the structure is the actual building, the stuff that never changes. Okay, That's your bow. Unless you are tinkering with it, for the most part, you put your, take your bow out of the case, you shoot it, you put it away. If everything is set properly on it, it'll be exactly the same when you pick it up the next time. Unless you do what I tell people not to do, leave it in their trunk, the strings elongate, you name it, all kinds of things happen from the heat. But we're not going to go there right now. If your bow is set properly, it should remain the same every single time within reason because if you have timing or something like that, you adjust it and it's back to being the same thing. Like I said, structure is what's always constant. The bow will always be constant for the most part. So you need to invest time in putting together the most forgiving setup possible since that is the easiest to troubleshoot and maintain. I'll repeat myself. The easiest to troubleshoot and maintain. So some people tell me, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is very simple. One, it should be that the bow cooperates with you. You have to look at it as an extension of yourself. Together, you and the bow make one machine. That machine has to work in harmony. What are some things that can throw that machine out of harmony? Well, let's just say you're overbowed. You're pulling too much weight. Yeah, that'll throw that harmony out pretty quick. Also, if you're overbowed and you're slinging that sucker back 30 times, let's just say that you're pulling 60 pounds and you really should only be pulling 50 or something like that. Again, there's nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed about it's your setup it's meant for you who cares what anyone else thinks of it there are guys adults that shoot 40 pounds because it's easy for them to repeat and it's easy for them to do you don't have to go macho shooting 70 like in target or something like that it makes no sense if it doesn't benefit you and if you can't be extremely comfortable with it it's going to screw you up now at the same time you could have a bow that is underbowed for somebody. Yeah, right now it's going through your head like, is that even possible? Hell yes, it's possible. Let's just say that you're the type of guy or gal who pulls 50 or 60 pounds all the time or even 70 pounds when you're hunting and you have a bow that was set up for target archery. Yeah, I said it very, very arrogantly because a lot of people who hunt or whatever, or just shoot 3D, they look at a target setup as like, oh, that's one of those things. It's for those arrogant people who want to have the fancy colors and all that. I think they're better than me. No. Set up for target, most bows are set up to be comfortable. So a lot of people set them up for like 45 or 50 pounds, whatever it is. In most competitions, like the USA Archery competitions, there's a limit of 60 pounds as high as they allow to get. 
But let's just say someone set a bow for 45 pounds for you on a target setup. Because generally they are lighter than hunting bows. Well, you who are now used to pulling 70 or 65, whatever, pull that thing back and you're noticing that you're shaking all over the place. Why is that? You would think that you'd be able to hold like a rock. Well, the problem is with shaking all over the place, why is that happening? It's because you're too strong for the bow. The, it's underbowed for you. So the stronger you are, the more pliable the bow becomes because you're basically just out-muscling it, and now all of a sudden the bow is shaking all over the place and all that. I see that with a lot of kids. As they get too strong for the bows I set up for them, their form starts getting a little weak or they start getting, their shots start spreading out and all that. And I'm like, well, you've just gotten stronger. So now we crank it up a couple of notches. Now they get more resistance. They can hold steadier. Good to go. Now, believe it or not, the same thing happens with let off. I'm going to say something that's going to sound like complete heresy, but it comes right out of the Necronomicon Sagittarium, chapter 3, verse 2. Don't hold me to that because when the final's finished, it'll probably won't be there. But whatever, I'm just saying. Thou shalt not use too much let off. Again, thou shalt not use too much let off. So the first thing people say to me when I tell them something like that is, are you crazy? If I got 90% let off available to me, I'm taking that. Okay. Then they start to shoot, and the groups aren't so great, whatever. And I'm like, well, you want to see something cute? And if the bow has the ability, I'll dial it back, and I'll set it at, say, 85 or 80% let off. Wow, all of a sudden the groups come together. Why? Because the more let off you have, the less weight you're holding, which means now, and I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I'll do it in one of my videos. But at full draw... There is very little tension on the string. So when you're anchoring and putting your face against the string, putting about putting your nose against the string, because it's got all that let off on it, well, what happens is it's more susceptible for angular distortion. A fancy word just means that your nose is kicking it out of the way and you're looking at the peep in a different angle. So... All that let off while it's cute and a great advertising gimmick and all that, it ain't the best thing in the world. And you'll find that in target setups, they have the lowest let off of everything because it keeps them on their game and it keeps people with a more demanding need to keep pulling. The other thing that happens with a very, very low let off, high let off, should I say, is that you're not holding a lot, okay? Which for a hunting situation, which is what they really came up with the whole thing, though it's still more detrimental in my view than anything else. But you're holding, you can hold for a much longer time, okay? Well, holding for a much longer time is one thing. It's a great advantage when you're hunting. It kind of sucks for target. You would think it wouldn't, but it does, because what happens is because it's not putting all that demand on you to pay attention and keep pulling back, which is the basis of how all shots are derived. You have to keep rear pressure as you're executing. Otherwise, the arrow starts to move forward and you get randomness in the shot. Well, if you're not 
having that demand right there all the time, you can get sloppy. And a lot of times you'll see a random shot that goes high, and you're like, how did that happen? Well, believe it or not, it's because when the cams went off, you were under-rotated, your arrow was creeping, you fired, and all of a sudden it goes high. Which you would think it would go the other way around, but it goes high. And it has to do with the fact that it gets sloppy. (coughs) Sorry about that. Anyway, we don't want the sloppiness. So you want to set your lead off to the point where it's comfortable and manageable and keeps you on your toes, if you will. So again, the highest lead off, great gimmick, but not for you. Find the one that actually works for you. Okay? Now, another part of that is your draw length. People, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it more than once, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. Draw length in the hunting world and in the target 3D world equals more speed the longer you go. However, this does in no way mean that if you're a 28-inch draw, because the creator did not bless you with height or really, really long arms, that you should be shooting a 30-inch draw to make up for speed and shoot more flat. That don't make any kind of sense. Because, you see, if your draw length is not set and tweaked to you, if it's too long, okay, you're going to tend to pull back, not have a solid anchor, and you're going to wrap it more around your face. And if you just pull your arrow back towards your face while you're holding steady, it starts to point to the right, which means your shots are going to be off. Conversely, if it's too short, when you're pulling, it's because you can't get to your proper anchor resting on your face. It starts to point the arrow to the left. Try to make that hit the target regularly all the time. Very, very difficult. So there's nothing to be gained by lengthening your draw length just to get some advantage of speed. Now, that's the draw length thing. We already went over the draw weight. Stabilizers. Now, folks, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this again. For those of you who shoot target, if you all have your favorite target shooter out there and you like seeing him shoot and you're like, that guy's got his... Well, that girl's got their game down to the point, and they're shooting four pounds of weight in the front and six pounds of weight in the back, and I'm exaggerating. Nobody shoots that much, but they're people who look like they are. Throwing a ton of weight on your stabilizers is not going to do it for you because you're not them. They're doing what works for them. Carbon copying somebody else's stabilizer setup is not going to work for you. You have to determine your own stabilizer setup on your own. And what that means is put the minimum amount of weight in the front 
Now, this is going to sound like blasphemy. But chapter 4, verse 9 of the Necronomicon Sagittarium claims and states, Thou shalt only use enough weight to accomplish stability. So if you wind up after you do all your testing, and I'll explain how to do the testing in a minute, but if you wind up with only four ounces in the front and eight or nine ounces in the back, you will not be shunned by the rest of the archery world because your bow doesn't look like everybody else's who likes to be a copycat and thinks it's going to work for them. You use the right amount of weight to help you. Now, your front stabilizer, okay, it should be enough weight where it's comfortable where you can still hold the bow. Putting 30 ounces in the front may look cool. Try holding that up for a while. It's going to start to suck. So you start with minimal, and then you see if that front weight, as you're in there, when you're drawing back, does it take some of the waggle out of it? What do I mean by waggle? The left or right. Yeah, doesn't that sound weird? Your front stabilizer weight does not fix up and down. It fix waggling left to right. You throw on a real sta- uh, rear stabilizer, put a little bit of weight on there. Generally, the rule is two to one for the front. So if you're starting out with two ounces in the front, go like four ounces in the back, whatever. And that'll correct your up and down. And the more impact that you want on it, just keep on swinging it out. All that's great. And people are like, oh yeah, it feels great like this and all that. Here's the thing that most people forget to tell you when you're setting up your stabilizers. The first thing is, it has to be balanced when you first get to anchor. What do I mean by that? Here come some of those deep, dark mysteries hidden in the Necronomicon that I'm going to tell you about. That I'm sure you may have heard from other people, but it kind of gets explained the wrong way most of the time. You see, if you were to close your eyes, draw with an arrow in there, please. I mean, let's really not get to trying to do this blindfold with nothing in there and you wind up dry firing your bow. We're not even going to talk about that right now. But if you close your eyes and you draw back your bow and you open your eyes and you look at your sight, is it level? Because if it's not, then you kind of have a little bit of a problem. Your stabilizers aren't set right and you're actually working against them to make them level out. Well, guess what? If you have to work against them, you're going to be struggling with that, and now you just add one more struggle to the whole game. Trying to balance the stabilizers that you put on there in the first place to help you. Now, there is truth to the fact that some people put a little bit of a left or a right balance in there where it's a little bit more off to left to give them something to actually stable, you know, to like a bias to work against, and that works for some people. But for the most part, lots of folks don't need it. So you can have a little bit that you actually put in there yourself 
to make it more easier for you to control, especially if you're shooting a much lighter bow. Some people need that. But for the most part, when you open up your eyes, if it's not level, then you're going to have to work with your stabilizers to make it level. And usually it has to do with how much weight is on the back and how big that swing is from the left to the right. And you can correct it really easily. Now, where some people drop off on this one is, well, if I can do that, now I've set it up, I'm good to go, right? No. You see, your body reacts when you execute the shot. So let's just say you've got your execution down. Everything's fine. Well, when you fire, what's going to happen is your body tends to snap a little bit. Like I told, told you before, we try to take as much of that snap out of it. But your body does react. For lack of a better word, there's an explosion that happens once that bow goes off. So the recoil effect, everything that happens has to do with the stabilization of the bow. So let's just say the way we're going to test this is you're going to set up at 20 yards, and the first thing we're going to do is test to see what your groups look like up and down. So let's just say you're shooting and your groups are tall on that on that line going straight up and down. You, they're on the line, but they're tall. So instead of your arrows going across or in a perfect circle, they're going up and down. That usually means that you don't have enough weight on the back. Okay? That means you're up and down because that's what's happening on the back. You either have too much or too little, and you play games with it until you see that all of a sudden that group goes from very, very tall to very, very round. Then you take that line and you turn it sideways again and you shoot again at it. Now we're looking to see where do your shots go. If your shots are going extreme left to right, making what I call the flying saucer pattern on the target, then what's happening is your front stabilizer is waggling to the left and the right back and forth. You add more weight to it. And you add more weight to it, or you subtract weight until that waggle stops. Now, I know there's at least one person listening to this out there who's saying, well, you just told me that it's got to be completely on when I close my eyes and I, and I look through, this, through the site and all that when I first draw. If I'm doing all these changes, it's got to screw that up. Maybe it will, and usually it kind of does. Think of it like this. Whenever you paper tune, you're looking for that bullet hole and you're making adjustments to your rest, a difference and all that, you really think it shoots a bullet hole again? It doesn't. Most of the time, it won't. Same thing with this. If all of a sudden now you draw back with your eyes closed and she's not holding in the center, she's not like automatically there, completely balanced, you may have to sway that, that bar in the back in a little bit or something like that. But just by a hair, and then all of a sudden, it calms down again. You don't have to go through the whole process of shooting the groups and all that. <clears throat> all really you're doing is just adjusting it a little, a little bit, but the weight distribution 
is going to be correct. So then that'll set up your stabilizer. So now you're, you've got your bow in harmony when it's going off, your bow in harmony when you're going to full draw, your draw length is correct. The, the bows now become symbiotic with you. Now, that's all well and good. If you still find, again, we're still working on that structure. If you still find that after putting all this weight on there and it's balanced and all that, the bow is still shaky. Sometimes adding all the weights you want to the stabilizers doesn't do anything. Sometimes you need to tack on some weights to the riser. We've been doing this for years. Sometimes risers are too light. Tack on a little weight to one of the, and they have the, they usually have the, the screw holes in there. You can just screw them in there, especially target bows. A little weight on the bottom or a little weight on the top, whichever one is your pleasure. Make the bow a little bit heavier, give you a little bit more mass weight, fixes it up. Conversely, there could be such a thing as a bow that is way too heavy for you. If you're used to shooting a hunting bow, which doesn't weigh that much or something like that, an overall mass weight of a bow that all of a sudden goes from weighing 5.5 pounds to 9 pounds is going to suck at first until you make yourself stronger. Well, you may think that it's easy to sling nine pounds out there because if you add a target bow, a sight, stabilizer, stabilizer weights, the rest, it adds up to a lot. It adds up to a lot on any bow. But if you can't hold that bow out there relaxed, for I'm just going to say 30 seconds then probably you need to work a little bit on your strength or you need to lighten the bow and go back to the drawing board and just make sure that everything balances out again. It's a fact of life. If it's too heavy, remember what I said, you're going to get tired, form's going to break down. So we want to make sure that the structure is there to make it comfortable for you to shoot for an extended period of time. The last thing about this, which is not particularly the bow itself, but still part of the equipment, There's two things, actually. But one of the last things is the arrow balance. What are you talking about? we got to balance an arrow now? No, but you should be shooting an arrow which is balanced for the particular draw weight and draw length. And that comes just by experimentation. There's charts out there, like the Easton chart, which will tell you, and every manufacturer has their own based on what the spine is of their arrows, They'll tell you, like, for 60 pounds, you shoot this this number, say, 400 spine. Depending on what your draw length is and all that, if it needs to be a little stiffer, you make it shorter, that sort of thing. The reason why the arrow balance is important to overall structure of your bow is because if the arrow is not meant for that setup, its flight will become erratic. Not erratic because the arrow is no good, but an underspined or an overspined arrow, and you really see it with the underspined stuff, such a thing as overspined, you can work around that. But something that's underspined is like trying to shoot a wet noodle. It's going to become much more susceptible, if not dangerous, to the shot. So 
let's just say you make a small mistake and you're underspined, instead of being an inch off the target, it might be a foot off the target because you get all that extra bend in there and small mistake, boom, goes flying off the mark. It can also be dangerous because if you're underspined for a particular draw weight, and it could be just a target bow, it does, especially if it's a hunting bow, it doesn't make a difference what it is, but if you exceed that bend limit, it'll snap or the arrow will explode. All that energy that's coming out of your bow has to go somewhere, and if the arrow can't handle it, it's coming right back at you. It'll go into the riser, the cams, and the limbs, and something's going to give because they're not meant for that. It's essentially dry firing your bow the last part of this structure which some people won't think makes much sense but trust me it does is your release if your release is not working for you the overall structure will be weakened People are now thinking to themselves, well, the release is not working. What do I got to do? The release may not be working for you because the way that you have it set up, D-loop too long, D-loop too short. How many people do you ever see out there where the D-loop is so short you can barely get the head of the release in there? Causes problems. You've got enough to worry about between your form and your your execution that I don't need to completely screw myself over by making it harder by having the release so tight in there that when I fire it, it's snapping. Or if there's another one, if it's too short or it's too long, you're going to wind up torquing the string. Remember that I said it's very, very flexible at full full draw. Torquing the string because you're twisting the D-loop and guess what the D-loop is attached to? Your string. And if thou twist the D-loop... Chapter 6, verse 2. Again, don't hold me to that. Don't know where it's going to actually wind up. I'm still writing it. But if you torque your string, your shot goes haywire. So the release, okay, number one, must be in good working order. If you have a release that catches or locks up, there's something wrong with it, you got to take care of that. But more importantly, if the way it's set up with a combination of the D-loop and how you're positioning on your face... The rocker position, that means that you're putting in the same place all the time, but you have to also remember that depending on how the release is set up, the head of the release has to be positioned in a way where it's going to go off smoothly. A lot of releases, especially the less expensive ones, they can shoot just as good as anything else, but what will happen is they're more susceptible because they're more cheaply made the engineering and design is not that good in them they're less expensive what will happen is some of those if you twist them too much when they're firing and they're pulling on that little that little flip inside the release that actually fires well that thing may not you as you twist it it's getting negative pressure on it and all of a sudden it can't go off because the It won't unhinge, let's just say. See, originally releases when they first started out, and I go back many, many years in this, we started out with polymer releases that just had like a little little edge, and you hung on to the string with that little edge, and as you rotated your hand and you're pulling back, 
it slipped off the edge and it fired. So they weren't always moving parts. To this day, there's still some back tension release companies. I know of one, Wayland's, where there is no moving part in the release. It's just a hook. And you set the hook at a separate depth, whatever, and as you're pulling back, and when you pull back, your hand naturally rotates. They go off. But if you have a release that's cheaply made, inexpensive, whatever, chances are the gears, the ratio they have set them up in, if you put, instead of just forward pressure, so it's like pulling directly against it, if you pull to the side or if you pull up, whatever, they don't go off. And if they do go off, they don't go off cleanly. So it's working against you. So besides the arrow, the release has to be good. When you put all these things together, you wind up with a structure that's solid. Now, what's the last thing in all this that I mentioned about building a skyscraper? The blueprint. It is the most important. The blueprint exists in your brain. It's real simple. You could have the best form, the best equipment, but if you don't have the mental game, if you will, none of it will work. Or if it does, it'll only work for short periods of time. And that's how target panic, the infamous TP, comes into play. What do I mean by that? Well, simple. I don't know if you've ever seen new people come into a shop. I see it all the time when I get new new students or whatever, but like George Wiles, he, he explained it to a T once. He says, you ever see a new person come into the shop and they never shot a bow before, so you set them up a release, you set them up with a bow, they start shooting, and bang, 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 they're hitting the 10, they're hitting the 10. It's like, damn, you're good at this. And that lasts sometimes a couple hours, sometimes a couple days, whatever it is. Then all of a sudden, the brain starts thinking, all right, all right, so now when I see the pin drop into the middle, bang, I'm going to let it go. becomes almost subconscious like that. Well, what happens is when your brain is doing that, it's working against you because that's how you start punching. That's how you start panicking on the shot. Your brain's panicking. And then, like, even though you're used to shooting the bow a couple of times, you're like anticipating the shot and you start to brace up a little bit after a while. These are all things that are built up of target panic. And then you're going to see some people that carry three releases on them. Back in the day when I was shooting, you go to Vegas and there were a couple of people that I knew that had like five releases inside their bags, all different back tension releases, thumb triggers, even whatever. The reason was that if your body gets too familiar with a particular release, it'll start to anticipate when it's going to go off and try to make it work faster. Your brain's working against you. The computer, its own AI, this is your brain we're talking about, is screwing up the program. And what those people used to do was, when they started to run into problems with, you know, dropping shots, something like that, they go into their bag, take another random release out, And because their brain doesn't know it, 
it started working for them again. Well, that only works for so long. Now, and you don't want to be walking around with 57 differently set releases inside your release bag. Just doesn't work. And here's another revelation that I'm going to drop on you. People always say, no matter who they are, the goal when they're shooting is to hit behind the pin. And then when it doesn't happen, they're like, oh, it just didn't, you know, I I had the pin on there and it didn't hit behind the pin. You know what the revelation is? It always hits behind the pin. The problem is that when you executed, your pin was pointed somewhere else. See, when you perceive the the pin to be somewhere and you flinch or you do something else, that act of actually flinching, tensing up, whatever, actually moves the pin at the time of the shot. Hence, you miss. That's why punching doesn't work. Now, there are some people, few and far between, there are a few in the pro ranks that have gotten it down to a science. Their release is set so light, and I don't suggest this for anybody. These are people who, this is all they do. All they do is shoot. They set their release so light, and once they're holding it on the middle of the target, touch it off, goes off. So they try to take it out of it, and it'll work for them. But I'll tell you something else. When it's working for them, it's working for them real good. But when it's not working for them, it's really, really bad. So you want to be, you want to have your shooting solution, that blueprint in your head that works for you. So there's been a lot of noise about Joel Turner and his applying a mental theory to shooting. You know, his son won Vegas that way. And it has to do with when you're shooting, okay? You're creating a system that basically runs itself, but at the same time that you have control over. So if you're in IT or computers in general, you'll know that all the major systems are built up of smaller systems that are networked together, okay? Each one of those systems has a specific duty. You just have to interconnect them, if you will, with a network that functions. And your brain is no different. So what do I mean by that? Well, the blueprint is I'm aiming, let's just say, okay? My eye never comes off of the center of the target. Even though my pin may be wandering, whatever, I know it's going to come back to the center, And I have described how to do that and practice that. I'll get into it on another podcast again. But no matter what you do, the pin always comes back into the center. Now, if you're focusing on the center, that's where it's going to go. The problem comes in when the targeting system, which requires all of your concentration, is offset by the execution system for the release. Here's what happens with that. All of a sudden, you're focused on the target and you're going through your release execution. And you ever hear somebody say the release didn't want to go off? 
Well, now when red light comes on, something's wrong, something's wrong, danger Will Robinson, you take your focus off the target and focusing on the center, and you start to wonder what's going on with the release hand. At that split second, game over. It doesn't work because now you split between two systems and disconnected one in favor of trying to figure out what the hell's wrong with the other one. Same thing can be said is if you're aiming, you've got your execution system going down, and something distracts you. Someone walking around, a noise, that sort of thing. It will take the harmony of the system out of whack because now the attention, which just to say is the power behind the system, instead of being distributed properly between targeting and firing, okay, now had to deplete its resources to go and worry about something else. So when I'm training my students, I always train them under loud noises and that sort of thing. Or when I'm on the range with them, I'll have them shooting and I will walk up to the side of them where I'm still in their peripheral vision and I'll pull out of my pocket a water gun and point it right at them. Guess what? If they notice anything because they lose their focus of concentration, shot goes to hell in a handbasket really quick. Because now all of a sudden they're wondering what I'm doing. Well, what do you take your, your attention off for? Now, that also goes into play with this. It cannot be completely automatic. The blueprint cannot be automatic. If for some reason, one part of the system is malfunctioning, engage the system, draw, anchor, focus, aim, start executing, and something's wrong. My breathing isn't right. My target's shaking too much. I'm in the middle of my execution. Some people will just say, let it rip. You can't. At that point, we know that if we fire, we're going to sacrifice accuracy because not all the focus and not all the distributed systems are in harmony. Something is off. Could have been that you you drew with your shoulder too high. Could have been you drew with the wrong grip. Your grip wasn't relaxed, so you get some skin tension on there. Could be anything. You have to have it so that if one system is glowing red, let down and reset. Draw back again with complete concentration. All the systems will work, but you have to have the ability to let down and shut down the systems if necessary. If you don't, you'll sacrifice accuracy because you're letting shots go off that aren't perfect. Okay, so like I said, okay, the the last part of all this, the glue, if you will, that keeps it all together, it's confidence. <clears throat> the biggest part of your mental blueprint. So the famous line is adapt and overcome. You know, that's very common in the military. It's one of the first things they beat into your head. Don't give up. Don't get frustrated. You adapt, you overcome. You have to train yourself. Okay. To have confidence in your shooting. 
You know that your structure is solid. You know that your foundation is solid. All that's working for you. Then the confidence should come along with the blueprint that says, I'm not hoping to hit the 10. I'm going to hit the 10. Okay? So if shots are hitting left, like you're shooting out in the wind or something like that, mentally your brain will know why it's happening and you, instead of freaking out and losing it, adapt and overcome. You just adjust. A well-trained archery mind can do that. It takes a while to get the programming down, but eventually it will kick in. If you want an example, just ask any good traditional archer who shoots instinctive. That means they're not shooting with any sights or anything. They're shooting right off the shelf. And if they don't hit where they're aiming, they mentally adjust and hit their mark. I mean, they pretty pretty much get up, draw. It could be 22 yards. It could be 29 yards. Their brain does all the calculation. It's automatic. They've got their mental blueprint going on. Their form is solid. Everything is good. And the brain just takes over and does what it's got to do. And if it doesn't go where they want it to, because maybe it looks further than it actually is, so the calculation's off, well, they feed new information into the computer. They mentally adjust, and they hit their mark. It's just a lot of automatic adjustments made by their mental targeting system. So again, be the building. Have a solid foundation. Have a solid structure. Have the blueprint in place that connects all your systems so that if something arises, you can troubleshoot it in an instant in your head and adjust without freaking out that the building's on fire. And it'll all work out for you. So that'll do it for this topic. Now we're going to go to our listener emails. And I have two for this week. Rich S. from Philadelphia, PA writes, Hey, Coach, love the podcast. Why, thank you. Hoping you have some insight into an issue I've been having ever since I started shooting over four years ago. Basically, holding steady seems to be impossible for me. I get these a lot. It just seems that I can't keep the pin on the target. It's always jumping or falling off the target altogether. I try lowering the draw weight. Mentioned that on another podcast. But even at 48 pounds, and I usually shoot 64, the same thing is still happening. The guys at the shop told me that my diamond wasn't a good bow, so I would see all the jumpiness go away with a brand new bow. What was the word I brought up before? Horse hockey? Horse hockey. Well, if I spent a lot of money and got a brand new VXR, Oh, I spent a lot of money, and I got a brand new Matthews VXR. No change at all. Could have told you that. Still the same thing happening. No matter what I do, it won't go away. The guys at the, top, at the shop say, I'm not jumping, and it must be in my head. What do you think is going on? In this case, I'm going to say, as I called horse hockey on the, it being the bow, it's... Not the bow. It's the fit. 
if you find that something is not going right, no matter what you do, he he, he was saying, um, target's always jumping around. Well, guess what? If the draw length is too short, it's real jumpy. If it's too long, it might be a little steadier. It's still going to be a little jumpy. It's going to be hard to hold in place. But when it's really too short, you literally will see it jumping around like a heartbeat monitor. So buying a new bow, if it's set the same way, is not going to help you. Now, I did email back and forth with him, and turns out that he was set to 29 inches. I asked him, like, to do the standard measurement for me and all that. This dude was six foot two. 29 inches seemed a little short to me, just hearing it off the bat. Well, sure enough, when we checked him out and I had him send me some pictures of how he's standing, he was short. I don't mean in stature. I mean short in draw. By about an inch. And you may say an inch doesn't sound like a lot. It is. So he put another module in the bow because with the Matthews now, you have to add a different module. With the other one that he had, okay, um, you could just rotate the cam cam module and does it all together. The one-inch difference stopped the jumpiness. I said, I don't want to make you feel bad, but if you lengthen the other one that you had, pretty much guarantee it's going to feel the same thing. It may not feel as stable as this new Matthews because it's a hot much better quality bow, but I can almost guarantee you that that uh, jumping, falling out, and all that goes away. I mean, a lot of times people have the right draw length, and this is had, has to do with how they actually draw and all that, but when I heard his height and the draw length, I'm like, that ain't right. He didn't have to buy a new bow. Sometimes diagnosis from the shop is not correct, and they're not doing it in a malicious way. I mean, their job is to sell more bows, and they're probably thinking the same thing they said to him. Well, if you get a better quality bow, it'll stop doing that. People, I've said time and time again, it's not the equipment. It's the shooter with property properly fitted equipment. And that's what his deal was. So always look to see how the foundation is looking before you go ahead and spend money on a bow just because someone says it's going to fix it up. Most of the time, you don't need to. Our second question comes from Daniel P. from Cape Town, South Africa. Wow, that's far. Hello there. Came across your podcast a few months back, and it really helped me clean up a lot of my form issues. Great. There aren't many coaches out here, so instruction is really hard to come by. Perhaps you can help out with a problem I've been having of recent. I switched releases a few weeks ago. I so want to go into like one of these weird accents, but I'm not. I'm really resisting that. I was doing fine with my backstrap release. The Dudley release. I know which one that is. Then after about three weeks, I started to get bigger groups, and I just couldn't get my act together. So I went to a B3 handheld trigger release. Immediately, I was able to shoot so much better, I had to tight groups again. Well, that only lasted about a month, and now I'm having the same problem. The bugger of it all. Bugger, huh? Okay, 
The bugger of it all is that the guys who set me up say there's nothing wrong with my setup. They, that I just have to learn the release better. But somehow that makes no sense to me. I had so much, so much more enjoyment when I started shooting. Now it's just so frustrating, I barely want to take this thing out back and shoot anymore. Are you able to point me in the right place? I'll be looking forward to the next podcast. Thanks, mate. Okay. What did I say before about the equipment and the people who rotate releases to get them to work? It's one thing to learn how to manipulate a release. It's another to really learn how to control it and make it part of your foundational system. It's mental because he had the the first release, his brain caught up to it, starts to anticipate it, you get target panic. Remember I said, last a little while, and then all of a sudden it starts to go off the rails. So that was probably what was going on with that because instead of really learning how to control the release... His brain starts anticipating he doesn't learn the proper control of the release. He goes to another release, which is still new. His brain hasn't caught up with it. It lasts for a while and back to square one. I bet if he picked up the back strap, he'd be tighter groups because he forgot how to manipulate that one in the first place. The other thing is, going from a wrist strap release to a handheld release, your anchor point's going to change too. For all you know, if they didn't adjust your anchor point, sometimes you have to shorten it shorten the draw, whatever, to accommodate it. Not always, but sometimes. Definitely have to adjust the anchor where it's going to be on your face, and sometimes that means moving the peep up and down. Then, if they didn't do that, yeah, you're, you're, you're really trying to compensate what's going on with a weird anchor. You're forgetting about the release. When you finally learn that anchor, you're back to learning the release automatically, your brain starts compensating back to square one all over the place. You've got to take the mind out of the shot process, but you also have to learn how to use that part of your foundational system. So if you're just doing the herky-jerky sort of thing, like boom, pull the trigger, slam it, whatever, you're not learning how to execute the release properly. You're not learning how to incorporate it because remember, it's another part of the system. Remember what I said about networking stuff. Part of your network's not functioning right because you don't have full control of it. Or you're hoping for the best when you squeeze that trigger so you're just slamming the trigger. Could be not squeezing the trigger. Could be not learning what it takes to get the trigger to go off. It could be putting in a different release position so now all of a sudden it's pulling at the wrong angle. If, and especially because the backstrap is a tension-based uh, trigger, if you all don't pull on that thing exactly the right way, they don't go off. Or if they do, they're herky-jerky when they go off. So all of these things combined, when you switch to the other release, create the problem. Had him send me a video. Shooting both releases. On the back strap, which is the wrist strap release, dude was like a cobra. He get pulled back, finger comes up, hovers above the, the trigger. He gets on there and whack. But then I see him go like this flinch a couple of times because it wouldn't go off. It's a tension-based release. That was one problem. He shot with the B3, the handheld. Now it's his thumb that's coming into it. 
And I told him, wrap your thumb around it. He started wrapping his thumb around slowly, and then all of a sudden, you see him go, whack! Never learned to control both releases so that he could stop the process at any point in the game. I told him, I said, at this point, you're better off with the handheld. Forget about the wrist strap. You can't go between the two of them. If you really want to learn the other one after you've learned this one, sure, no problem. Let's stick with the handheld. I can teach you that easier. And I showed him how to position the rocker, proper rocker position for it, where to put the trigger so it beds inside the web of his thumb, and how to actually fire it. It ain't by pulling the thumb. Hands relaxed, and all you're doing is increasing pressure on the ring finger as you pull back. Goes off. I never moved my thumb, but I pulled it around it, which makes it go off. Took him, I'd say, about a week, and this is a couple weeks ago, time I'm recording this and dude is shooting tight groups not because I laid any kind of special incantation for my Necronomicon Sagittarium but because I just told him dude learn how to use it this is how you use it master that part of the network and it will incorporate into the rest of the system naturally that's what he did And it's working. So that'll do it for our listener questions. And why I have such a pause is because it's been a while since I've done a couple of podcasts. And the last one I did with, you know, I had a guest on the show. And generally when when I have guests, I don't do a don't be that guy. But so many of you have been waiting for this segment. So therefore, chapter 11, verse 6, thou shalt have a Don't Be That Guy Now podcast. No, that won't be in the book, but we're going to have a Don't Be That Guy for today. Now, it's early December, and the new bow craze is all starting. All the manufacturers are coming out with their 2023 bows and the associated promises that come with them. So this don't be that guy is a little different. This one goes out to all the manufacturers out there and their advertising people. You all know who you are. What I'm going to say is, don't be that guy that goes promising something to be so different, but it's really a rehash of something else. You know what I'm talking about. Well, it has less vibration than last year's model. Wait a minute. Last year, you said it had no vibration. So how the hell is that possible? How do you have less than zero? Are we going to negative vibration? No, it's called lying. Speed. It says one thing, and when you shoot it, it says another. The IBO speed principle, I'm not fond of anyway. But you all still have to lie about it. It's not realistic, yet you put up these crazy numbers, and when someone actually tests it according to the IBO settings, 30-inch arrow is 70 pounds, 30-inch draw, you fall short by 15 to 20 feet per second. Yeah, okay. 
ridiculous innovations that are so expensive people have to take out a mortgage to afford them. Case in point, a stabilizer system that costs just as much as the bow. Are you freaking kidding me? Have some responsibility, people. Don't be that kind of guy who will sacrifice integrity for a sale. You know, we're in the worst economy we've had in a long time. I'm not political in any way. But people are strapped for funds, myself included. And a lot of times there's folks out there that when they buy a new bow, they need it to last for years because they don't have that kind of money. So a bow is an investment, a big part of their life. And they may have a bow for the last three or four years. And when you put all this advertising out there, the smoke and mirrors of stuff that really isn't true in the first place, because you're being that guy, you don't need to fool these people. They can't handle it. You're selling them a false bill of goods, which to you is just another sale. To them... They're taking money that a lot of times they don't have to buy that new bow because they're expecting it to be so different and much better than what they had. They would have waited another year or two. But no, because you're that guy and you did such a great job at advertising and blowing smoke. There are some elements of those people that, believe it or not, will get the newest and boldest instead of paying their light bill or putting food on the table. Sounds crazy, right? It's true. There are people like that. And it's not fair to them. You guys have got to show some responsibility, for God's sake. That's how you're being that guy. And it's really crazy. And you can't just justify it by saying, I'm doing my job, I'm selling more bows. That's all great and all that. But people, please, don't sell somebody a false bill of goods. Because you know what? They don't have the luxury of trying all these bows and all that, seeing which one is right for them, seeing if it's really true. A lot of people, let me correct that, most people... Go into a shop. That's the one I want. Saw some advertising. That's the one I want. Trying it, get it sized to them, walk out. They never see them in the shop again. You know what? They get home. They try it. They're like, oh my God, what did I buy this thing for? This is not doing what everything is saying. It's not. This thing's got zero vibration. This thing's got some vibration on it. So they get all these blown up expectations because you put on the show and it's just not fair and you know what that actually works against you yeah it works against you people all you advertisers and manufacturers and all that you know why it works against you because if you put something out there that's not what it's cracked up to be People will, rather than deal with it, put it for sale. 
at a much lower price than you're selling your stuff for. That'll come back to bite you in the ass because why am I going to spend $1,500 on a bow when some dude is selling a brand new one that's not even six months old for 800 bucks on archery talk? Your false advertising will come back to bite you in the ass. So all I'm saying, everybody's got to make a dollar. Be a little bit more honest with it. Don't talk directly to the people who are working in the shops and stuff like that because you got to remember, they represent a tiny portion of the population out there that is actually going to be the consumer for this bow. The vast majority of them don't have all the resources to go trying this stuff and seeing which one feels better. They go and they're easily impressionable. And guess what? When What you think is just a quick sale could be adversely impact, impacting their livelihood because they sacrifice a million and one things because you said this is something and it's not. And it's always that thing, buyer beware, true. But a little bit of ethical ethical responsibility kind of helps. So now every advertiser and manufacturer out there probably hates me. But I've gotten that off my chest. Save this one up for a couple episodes, people. I really had to do something. Anyway, that'll do it for this episode of the High Power Archie Podcast. We're happy that you came back to listen, though I've taken so long to put episodes out there. Not by choice. Get into that in another episode. But, any hoot, I'm still here. I'm trying to produce as much content for you as possible. We will be filling our YouTube page as well. One thing at a time, I just want to get some more episodes up first. So, like I always say, if you want to reach out to us, you can find us at highpowerarchery.com, YouTube, youtube.com slash highpowerarchery. You can send us an email to highpowerarchery at gmail.com. Smoke signals, telegraph, whatever you want. We will respond to each and every query. People don't start smoke signals by lighting things on fire and hoping I'm looking at the sky because chances are from the hemisphere you're located in. I can't see it anyway. But there, I said it. So anyway, like we always say, it's never goodbye. It's until we meet again. And until then, stay safe and shoot straight. And thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>